Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Emma Stiles about her thriller No Country for Girls. Emma grew up in Western Australia and now lives in London where she was born and she has an MA in crime fiction from the University of East Anglia. In this episode we talk about how this novel started out as an experiment why Emma thinks it's important to trust your own process when working out characterization, and trying not to worry that you don't have all of your story worked out when you start. But first, here's Emma with an excerpt from No Country for Girls. She swerves us back into the left lane as a truck sucks past and overtakes. One of them big road trains with two trailers on the back of it rattles the teeth in my head. Fuck's sakes, I say. Get your licence out of weedy packet. Your phone, she says. It's trackable. You can't keep it. She keeps turning her head to look at me. Watch the road, all right? That's why I got rid of mine. Could have told me that was why. I am telling you. I'm telling you now. You said you didn't have one. So? You were dumb enough to believe it. Well, you can't keep it. The police can track it. She slows the car. It's a precaution, that's all, in case they find him. Throw it, she says. Chuck it out the window. No way. I unlock the screen. How am I going to call Jean? Just do it. She reaches across. I slap her hand away. No, give us a second. Got all my music on it. It's better if you don't think about it, she says. Our eyes meet, a patch of cloud in hers that slides away. What's her story? She still hasn't told me it. Here, she digs a hand in her messenger bag between the seats, waves the pen at me. Write her number down. I borrow Jean's number onto the inside of my arm, pull the sim out the phone and stare at it before I crunch it between my teeth. What's that for? Nao says. Watch the road. The sim. You destroy it, yeah? Like they do on TV. That what you did with yours? She doesn't answer, just shifts her eyes front while I let the sim and the phone case go out the window. I watch them flip off the bitumen onto the dirt, the little puffs of dust the flat country stretching out forever, and the sun and everything else making my eyes sting, the phone I slide into my pocket so she can't see. Got all my music on it, mum's music. I can keep it turned off. Nao doesn't have to know. Feels like nothing's going to be the same ever again as it is. Hi Emma, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut, No Country for Girls. Hey, Chloe, thank you so much for having me on your awesome podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. So could you start by telling us what No Country for Girls is about? Sure. No Country for Girls is a pacey, high-stakes road trip thriller about two teen girls, Charlie and Nao, 
who take off along 2000 kilometers of remote highway in a dead man's vehicle. And they do this after a somewhat bloody incident at the end of chapter one that leaves a man dead on Charlie's kitchen floor. It's been described as Thelma and Louise meets the tourist and it's my love letter to road movies, high octane thrillers and the West Australian outback. That is the best description that anyone's done of their novel, I think, on this podcast. I think that describes your novel to a T. And I know how hard it is to summarise your novel in a few words because that is the thing that I struggle with the most. So well done. I would say high octane is the best description for your novel. (laughs) Thanks. You know, it's so funny because actually it was Louise Morris who first described the book as high octane. And then when I saw my editor, which I never would have thought of, then I saw my editor had in the very short thing on Amazon also described it as high octane. And that made me laugh. So actually I sent Lou a message saying, thank you for high octane. (laughs) Um, But then I noticed that actually in in the first, in the letter my editor had first sent me when he made the offer on the book, he used the word high octane, which I had actually missed at that time. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm going to ask you about this later because literally at every turn, there is something that happens or there is danger to run away from. You know, you put your girls through the ringer in this novel. Um, (laughs) So I want to know where the idea came from for this book, because you said something that really interested me in your acknowledgements. And you said you started this novel as an experiment and you didn't necessarily think it was going to be a novel, but it was just an experiment. So tell us about that then. How did it start? Okay. I can highly recommend that actually to any aspiring author to go with the experiment idea to, or to just experiment in all sorts of ways. But um, it was basically because I went, I did this, I had been writing and doing all sorts of writing courses, submitting occasionally for about 10 years. Mostly I'd been writing children's and YA at that point and none of, none of those books got published. And then I started this, so it, was, it felt like it was like, this is my last chance. I'm, I, I wanna do something to help me with my writing. I felt like I needed something to really stretched me so that's how I found and ended up getting accepted on this crime fiction MA course at the University of East Anglia so I went on that course and I had an idea for what I was going to write and then what happened which was something completely different and then what happened we were doing just in the very first module we were doing some writing exercises and we do this exercise, it was a character exercise, and these two characters appeared, Charlie and Nao, appeared in this exercise. And they were, I'd never had such a vivid experience of character that was so immediate. They were, you know, they were almost fully formed, both of them. I felt like I knew so many things about them. They, they had this amazing char- chemistry. I mean, they didn't like each other, but you know, a good, sort of spiky chemistry in that way and I just knew that they were the characters for this novel but I didn't have the novel at that point I just had these two characters and I had this energy between them Um, but I had been thinking about 
for the two, for the maybe the couple of years previous, I'd just vaguely been thinking about a Thelma and Louise style idea. Um, and I'd been thinking, you know, because by then it was almost, I mean, now it's past that time, but it had, by then it was almost 30 years since that movie had come out. And I had been thinking, why hasn't anyone written a novel in that, you know, in that same kind of vein? And so as soon as I met these characters, I knew they were the ones for that road trip story because they had this energy. They had so much they needed to work out and, and they needed a big space in which to do it. So that was the, that was one aspect of the experiment that really they just appeared and I thought, well, I'm going to go with it. And the other aspect was, I thought I'm on this course, I've got this amazing opportunity to work, A, to be, to kind of bounce off ideas, ideas off my fellow students, but also to work with a tutor one-to-one -one in a way I had never done before. So I wanted to write in a, in a style that I hadn't written in before. So, uh, and, and again, these two characters, especially Charlie, did make that quite easy. So I, I wanted to put, I wanted to put some dark humour in the book and it and it's like I, I slightly hesitate saying that because it's a very particular sense of humour and honestly I'm sure some people will be like this is not even funny Emma but um, like for me it was funny and Charlie was making me laugh and that was keeping me going and I'd certainly never in a million years had I ever written anything anything remotely like her before so that was the, also a big part of the experiment. Do you think seeing it as an experiment kind of helped take that pressure off because before you'd been writing children's and YA and you had in your head okay this is what I'm going to write and I'm going to attempt to get these books published this is just you having fun really so do you think that helped yes I do I do think that helped because although I knew that on that course it was two years part-time I knew that we had to hand in a whole novel at the end of the course um, and that was one of the reasons I picked the course. I thought it's, that's very practical. That's going to give me a draft of a novel. Um, and although our lovely, incredibly enthusiastic and supportive tutors were constantly saying things like, when this novel is published, Emma, you know, <laughs> they were constantly saying things like that to us, which was great. But I didn't really believe it. I think I'd been going for so long that I did see it just as I'm going to have fun writing this book. I'm going to write the book that I would most like to read. I think after 10 years of trying, that's where I got to. That was, that's the, that fell like the bottom line. I'm going to write the book I would most like to read. Mm. Um, and that would be, and the, for this book, that's absolutely more true of this book than anything else I've ever written before which is why I'm so thrilled that it's the one that got published, I think. So tell us about Charlie and Naya then, these two characters that came to you so vividly and so fully formed. And I think that shows in your writing because they are so strong-willed. I mean, they clash a lot, um, but tell us about them. Tell us what makes them clash. Tell us what makes them work together in a team. Well, when, when I wrote that very first scene, which which hasn't, some of the dialogue has survived into the into the now published book, but this when they very first met in that writing exercise that I did, they literally ran into it. Like Nao was running and she literally ran into Charlie in the dark and knocked her over. So I think that 
that energy of that um, incident was really, really did help as well. It was all, it was almost part of the formation of these two characters. So I knew that they, I knew that I had this incredible, what I then, I must've got this, this phrase from, an, from some writer, but I couldn't tell you who. I, I felt like I had this incredible conflict engine in these two characters. Even before there was a story, I knew that No was a young First Nations woman and that Charlie was white. I knew pretty quickly that Charlie was queer and No was straight. They had very different um, family backgrounds or there were, there were similarities and differences. So No has been brought up, her dad is Aboriginal and he has died when she was quite young, which we do find out fairly early on. She's been brought up in relative privilege with her mum who is white and her stepfather who is white. Charlie has also, we learned quite early on, lost her mum and her dad is not on the scene and she's quite reliant on her older sister, but she's been brought up, you know, in with much more struggle in her background. And Charlie's just been kicked out of school for punching a boy. Nao is in her first year of studying law at university so there were all these differences and but the the bit you know in, in a way the biggest differences that emerged despite those or as a part of those other aspects were their personalities Charlie is so you know she comes across really quite hostile and spiky reactive Charlie was always reacting, couldn't, you know, has trouble controlling her impulses. Whereas now is in those, particularly in those early chapters, I found it so interesting that now is really quietly driving the plot and manipulating events. And Charlie is reacting. Um, now is really thinking things through. I mean, she might be, they're both traumatized by different uh, events, but Despite this, uh, yeah, No is really thinking things through and Charlie's just kind of like a bit of a pinballing around, <laughs> around the, the people and events and places that they meet. So that writing those two characters was like such a joy. I've never had such fun. Uh, and I've actually had real, I know you might, you probably ask me this later if we have time, but I, I've had such trouble letting go of these two characters to write more characters. It's just been a bit of a struggle. Oh, really? You <laughs> feel like their voices are still with you? <laughs> yeah, not so much now, but they, they have been, they were for a long time. Mm. And even though once I think once we'd been through, you know, quite a few edits and I knew that we were done with the book, that I couldn't change anything else, which is that slightly terrifying moment when you realise, oh, my God, I can't change anything else. Then they did stop talking to each other in my head, which was like a relief because like this cannot go on forever. <laughs> so obviously their, their characters came to you. Was it their voices as well? Because they are. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of Charlie. She's quite spiky, sweary, confrontational. Were those voices just there from the beginning or did you have to do a little bit of work? How did that work for you? 
that again they were quite different which which was also interesting so charlie was absolutely there from the beginning and she was the most she was the kind of loudest in my head for sure and i honestly didn't really feel like i had to do very much work to get her i just kind of had to let her i just kind of had to get her talking on the page because she wanted to talk all the time you know she wanted to talk all the time that was good though because I mean, that was another part of the experiment aspect is that I hadn't really written dialogue like this before. The dialogue came really easily. And I think that was, again, due to the voices. Um, and with Nao's character, it felt like she was, yeah, it, it definitely took time with her. Um, she, was she was there as a presence, as a strong character right from the start. It's just, I guess, that compared to Charlie, she's not, yeah, she, th she thinks about things before she talks and she would, given the choice, say a lot less. I mean, I had to get her saying more because she was, <laughs> she's one of the protagonists in my book. But certainly, given the choice, she would probably, yeah, have been uh, quieter. So that took time and also even learning her motivations took time and I found that really interesting because in a way that's very much in line with her character so the fact that she did take time was totally felt right for her character mm -hmm. but even when I was doing like even when I was still doing edits you know my editor was like we had to pin down those motivation to because she was driving the plot and there were lots of ways I could have done that. But yeah, it really took me time to get to know her. And that was a great, that was a great process. I think, you know, lots of people have said to me, quite a few readers and other authors, and it's kind of amazed me. People have said, these characters are so original. How do you write these characters? I had a review recently um, from Anne Cater, and I think she said something like, it's like this author, her creation of character is effortless and I thought well that's totally not the not the case but I'm glad it sort of feels like that but you know honestly Chloe I used to think that because it takes me so long to get to know characters not always but quite often it takes it can take me months to figure out what a character wants and because you know that character obstacle goal that's the thing that you want that's got to drive your story I used to think I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing character wrong because I don't have these immediately available to me. But I, so that's the thing that I would say to other writers is just trust your process. You know, everyone does it differently and let it take the time it takes. I'm really glad that you said that because I feel very similar in I find motivation one of the hardest things to work out. And I you know, I've struggled with that in the past. And in fact, I had a conversation with a new writer recently who was asking my advice on something about motivation. And I said, you know, ideally you should probably start knowing what your character wants, but to be honest, that's not always the case. And I loved what you wrote in the, I think it was in the end of your author's note where you said you didn't even plan to submit your novel to agents because you thought you were kind of doing it wrong and you thought you'd <laughs> messed up. But you, like you've just said, you've got to you've got to do it your own way and forge your own path. Yes, yes, definitely, because it is no two no two writers have the same 
process. And every and also every time you write a book, it's like you learn how you write that particular book. You're not even going to do that the same way again. But I think since learning that about or learning that thing about me about oh it just took a it just takes a long time that has given me confidence. So like I've got this note because I'm now still fairly early stages really in in my book two struggles. <laughs> but I've got this note on that other book and it says in No Country for Girls a lot of the plot didn't come into focus until very late on. All I had was the girls and the road for months so don't panic and um, because that's that's true that the girls made it easy for me because they had this great energy and also I knew I was sending them on this road trip so I knew where they were geographically going but a lot of the rest of the story yeah it did happen as we went along we ha it happened on the road basically mm. I'm going to write myself one of those notes. I think that's a great idea to remind yourself, like actually bits of the bits of the story and bits of the process come so late on that you don't have to start writing with all everything figured out. And I think that's sometimes what I admire about people that don't plan. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, sure. um, that people can just write as, as they go and, and feel their way through a story. Sometimes I think oh, I kind of wish I was a bit more like that, but then maybe that was the process for, for writing a first book because it's all brand new and you don't know all the answers until you've, you've had a go at a first draft. Yeah. So, so tell me, Emma, are you a planner? <laughs> I am a planner, but um, I'm definitely, I definitely, the, what actually happens has an awful lot of pantsing in it. <laughs> so, so when, when I saw, uh, when I, you, you know when I saw this question about planning that made me laugh because I had this horrible horrible document that was called who knows what when and it was this horrible table <laughs> of all the characters in a very detailed timeline and in each of these boxes in tiny tiny font was described exactly that what what characters knew what at what point in the story because and I know you're going to ask me about Gina's point of view at some point as well because quite a lot especially in the first draft quite a lot of stuff was happening off screen from Charlie and Nao so that was a huge challenge it's like okay if I'm writing these this just from these two characters point of view what about all the other stuff and how do they learn stuff and how does the reader learn stuff if I'm only in these two heads? So that's why I had this horrible, horrible document. And when I um, first started working with my editor at Sphere, uh, there was a certain point, I'm not sure exactly when, but it was probably fairly early on, I said to him, look, I've got this horrible, horrible document. Do you want to see the document? And when he said to me, no, Emma, I do not need to see that document, I was so happy because I knew I was never going to have to look at it again either. It's like we had got past that document. Mm. And oh, so we were doing structural edits and he didn't want to see that document. And I was just like, oh, thank God for that. I'm never going to have to look at it again. But apart from that horrible document, I also did Yes, I did a pretty, I always do, I'll, pl I'll plot out the whole thing very sketchily to start with and then I will go through, but I don't always manage to do the whole novel 
straight up like this. I'll sometimes do it, often do it in sections. Then I'll try and plot out every scene, just a line or two lines of this is what happens in this scene. But then what happens is I'm constantly, constantly revising that on the basis of what actually happens on the page, which is often not at all what I had planned. So that happened all the time. My process with that horrible document was that I was constantly changing it in response to what had actually happened between those two characters. So um, and not and not just between them, between them, the, them and the, the environment, between them and the people they meet. So many things that have wound up in this story, No Country for Girls, to totally took me by surprise, mm. which is, I think, which is really great, which is a really fun experience. And also it does mean for probably a pretty fun experience for the reader because I, I'm absolutely confident that things happen in this book that no one will have read in a story before. Certainly that no one will have read in a crime novel before. And um, that's because those things, yeah, were not planned at all. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yeah, so you've mentioned Gina's perspective. So let's touch on that because I was surprised when I was reading it because when I when I started the novel and it was Charlie's point of view and Nair's point of view, and I thought it's going to just be those two the whole way through the book. And then suddenly Gina pops up and she's Charlie's sister. And you're thinking, wait a minute, why are we getting Gina's point of view? And um, we're not going to spoil that. But I no. was wondering whether is was Gina the reason? I mean, because you said there was a lot of things that the girls couldn't know that were going on back at home or going on outside their little bubble. So yeah. was Gina used almost as a as a method for telling that story? Yes, she was. Um, but interestingly, I didn't, um, she wasn't initially, that wasn't the very first reason that I put her in there. But once she was in there, I realised that that's really was the reason she was in there. It was just that I, I can't remember how many words of the first draft I'd written by then, but I took the opening to like a agent one-to-one -one thing through the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which I had been a member of because I was writing Children's of YA. And I took this opening few pages to this agent for a one-to-one -one, and she was an agent who covered, who represented both crime and thrillers, adult crime and thrillers and YA. And she, her feedback was, Love the voice, great teen voice. That was Charlie's voice. But you're never going to be able to sell this book because there's a mismatch between the young teen voice and the adult story. And she was like, can you make her an older 
teenager or can you make her more mature and I knew I could not make Charlie more mature like it was just that her character is her character I couldn't change her but it was interesting I there was I thought that that agent was right now it turned out that she wasn't right in this particular case um but because she had said that to me and I thought I thought that there was an element of maybe truth in what she was saying that was the initial motivation for me bringing in Gina's character because she's a few years older than Charlie, quite a few years. She's about five years older than Charlie, I think four or five years older than Charlie. So she's in her early twenties. So, so initially when I then finished the first draft, it actually started with Gina's point of view. And initially I had actually written them all in the first person. Um, but and as I started writing Gina's character, then it became absolutely clear that that was the point of having her in there was that then, yes, she could show the things that I needed the reader to know that Charlie and now couldn't possibly know. So she was, um, she was she's absolutely a player um, in the story in her own right, but she's not one of the two protagonists. And in the end, that was, why and in response to feedback from both my agent and editor I actually put her back into the third person um they didn't actually in fact they didn't ask me to do that they just said why don't you experiment a bit mm. with Gina and then once I once I'd started writing her back in the third person that I realized oh that's working much better um so yes she does she's she's still she's still emotionally a real heart in the story, but she's definitely there for a purpose mm. to help be able to tell it more clearly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask as well, because as we've mentioned high octane, and this is such a kind of intense adventure slash thriller, because I think it is a bit of an adventure as well. Um, yeah. How did you maintain this high level of oh yeah it's relentless really this high level of tension and you keep making the situation harder and harder how did how did you do it was, was there a point where you maybe you were writing and then maybe your agent or editor said to you no we need another thing here to make this more difficult how did it work <laughs> that's so funny because <laughs> it's literally like the opposite oh so really like you were making it worse were you I tell you, I think where that came from was because I tell you what, training in writing for children is excellent training if you want to write thrillers or anything tense or action packed. Because when I started writing, so I did, when I very first started writing, I was kind of the opposite. Like the feedback I would get on my very first few writing courses were things like, Emma, it's really beautiful writing, but nothing is happening, which, which I would find mortifying. Like, why? What are you talking about? So then I obviously took that early advice really to heart and I kind of went the other way. So the reason I'm laughing is because at my launch party, my editor, Cal Kenny, so he gave this lovely little speech. And honestly, I wish someone had recorded that speech because it's like the kind of thing you want to listen to when you're having a bad day. Oh, my God. But anyway, no one did. But anyway, he said I, that he couldn't believe when he was reading this, he would think, oh, now we're going to have, now we're going to have a bit of a breather. And he turned the page. It's like, oh, no. Oh, my God. No, it's another thing. <laughs> exactly what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> he had never read anything so 
fast paced on submission before. And so that was one of the things we did in the first, in the structural edit was actually we slowed things down. So we added in the whole edit, I think we added nearly 20,000 words and a lot of that. So it gives you an idea of what it must have been like before. Like I've now, you know, I just don't know, Chloe. I think it is, I, it's kind of like that energy of the thriller energy is something I've really taken on board, I think. And I, when I was writing the first draft, I often find it really helps me if I'm reading quite a pacey thriller while I'm trying to write it. So I read a lot, I read a whole load of Lee Child books. I like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Reacher fan. So I liked, I was reading a lot of Lee Child while I was writing the first draft. That really helped. But there was, even when, when we're getting quite close to the end of the edits and I would say things like, um, Cal, I think, you know, I'm worried that this hot, this scene is too slow and <laughs> I'm, wor- I'm worried it's like they're on a camping holiday and he's like, Emma, it is not like they're on a camping holiday. I'm telling you now. So <laughs> those are the kind of discussions we had. Oh, I love that. I, I, that's brilliant. I, um, I just kept imagining that they were pushing you. I just hadn't imagined it in the other way. But maybe you're right. Maybe it's this idea that I think we want to be excited while we're writing as well and if you feel like you're in a bit of a lull you kind of add in something that's like a horrendous thing for your girls to cope with maybe that's keeping you entertained as well I think that's true I think that is true yeah I mean it did all of those things did happen quite organically I mean I look don't get me wrong I had also had some amazingly helpful feedback while I was on the course writing the first draft from both the other students in my group and also from my um, tutors but um, yeah I think that that absolute drive to put my characters through hell is something that comes fairly naturally to me which is great because I'm gonna have to keep doing it in future books (laughs) yeah I don't think you've got any worries there now (laughs) people might be able to tell from listening to you speak that you are actually Australian um but I know that majority of this book was actually written in England and edited in lockdown and I noticed that you um said you kind of quizzed friends back in Australia about you know what they could see and smell and hear and taste so yeah. your descriptions in this novel are so visceral and obviously you've lived there and you've, you've been to these places, but how did you get yourself back into that mindset for when you were writing? Because you, you were, you know, thousands of miles away. I think a lot of that did come pretty naturally because I was and am so homesick Western Australia so that's I I think that longing for the place has it's it's kind of like the the defining tension of my adult life it's definitely the reason I started writing in the first place so when so I was born in the UK we emigrated to Australia when I was nine and I was the oldest of four children and the, the whole all of the rest of my family are still in Perth Western Australia and it was really formative so I lived there till I was with in my mid-20s and then I came back to the UK I thought for just a couple of years and then various things happened uh, and I kept staying a bit longer and a bit longer but all but just 
despite the just staying a bit longer and a bit longer, still all of that time I was homesick. I, I, when I look back, I'm like, I do not know why I just stayed and didn't go back because of how strong that uh, longing for home, because I still think of it as home, has been. So I think that came, and because I did first everything pretty well, every single thing I've written from short stories to novels, has all been set in Western Australia in different parts of it because it is um, a big state. It's a pretty huge state. It has very varied la- landscapes. But, yeah, I think that came pretty naturally to conjure up something that got under my skin, I guess, as I was growing up there. But I did worry. I think, well, when I... The first draft, I had actually renamed, although it was a real route the road trip the route the girls take on the road trip is a real absolutely it's a real road trip that I have done yeah so though it was real I had changed all the place names I had I I had enjoyed slightly changing the place names into these slightly kind of poetic creative (laughs) different but then um that was one thing my editor chat wanted us to change back straight away he's like it's a real road trip these are real places so he wanted me to change them all back which I was happy to do but it did slightly worry me because I thought well it's not going to be entirely accurate you know like I thought I haven't been I'm I've written a lot of this on going on memory um I was inching around google street view taking all these screenshots so I didn't want locals to be like hang on a minute this is not right so I did, that's when I was asking my family and friends heaps of questions. And I was, they were sending me little videos. I was asking them what things smelled like. The situation in Western Australia was very different. They were, had their own version of being locked down, if you like, which was just that mostly their borders were closed, not, a, not only to, to the rest of the world, but also to the rest of Australia. Locals were being encouraged to do road trips, to travel within Western Australia. There was a big um, tourism initiative um, to get out and see your backyard because you couldn't go travelling anywhere else. So actually, my friends and family were doing more travelling around the state. Also, I have my brother works as a fly in fly out uh he's a geologist in the mining industry and I at that time also had another sibling and they were working as a fly in fly out contractor and what that means is you you fly into a remote location you do your week or two week shift or whatever and then you fly back to the city and you have a week off or so because of all of that I had people all over, I had people all over the state, so I could ask them. So we've talked a little bit about your masters and your kind of the way you started approaching this novel, but can you tell us how you came to get your agent and your book deal and kind of how long did it take from that initial idea to becoming a published novel? I, the initial idea and starting to write, that was September 2018. I handed the well it was by it was kind of a third draft by the time I handed it in to the tutors on the course which was September 2020 um at that stage as you have mentioned I thought I'd I thought I'd really screwed it up and I thought I'm never going to submit this because I'm just going to put it in the bin and I'll write another book but I thought I've learned a heap but that's fine and then all of our manuscripts got entered into this uh, 
competition, which was read by a whole bunch of Sphere editors at Little Brown. And this was the Little Brown UEA Crime Fiction Award. And they, I won that prize. So I won that. So first of all, it got shortlisted. I guess that was early November. I was totally amazed, but I was thrilled because I thought, okay, there's something in this book. At that point, or maybe even a bit before, my agent had contacted me. I hadn't submitted it to anyone. He was like, is, is the manuscript ready? Can I read it? I sent it to him thinking, still, that was before the shortlisting. So I sent it to him thinking, well, that's just like, you know, but I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. Let's see what he says. And um, anyway, then things happened quite fast. They gave me the prize. I signed with my agent basically because at that point, no one else had contacted me. And I liked what he had said about the book. So he'd given me his own feedback. And, you know, and then straight after giving me the prize, like two days after, Little Brown sent me an offer on the book. They wanted to publish the book. So that amazed me too. And that's pretty well when I signed with my agent. That all happened within a couple of days. And it's weird when those things happen, not that it has ever happened before, but I think you get caught up with this frenetic energy and you think, oh my God, I've got to like, I've got to do this. I've got to say yes. And I've got to, it wasn't a, I didn't take my time. I didn't do the things that I thought I would always thought I was going to do, which was like, take my time and submit to a small list of agents and all that. But, you know, when I met these two guys, my agent and my editor, I just kind of knew they were the guy, they were the guys for this book. So, um, and I knew because of the letter that my editor, Cal Kenny, had sent me, the offer on the book. I just, that was it. I followed my gut that he was the guy for the book. And that has proved to be the case, I feel. Well, I think that sounds amazing that it all happened in such a short amount of time, even though it was, <laughs> even if it was a bit overwhelming at the time. Is there anything that you know now that you're a published author that you wish you'd known right back at the beginning what what would that thing be (laughs) you know this is like the one question that I realized I haven't really thought about because when I saw that question I thought oh my goodness there's so many things there's (laughs) so many things the thing that kind of comes to me in a sense is a thing that I told myself at the beginning I would do and I don't think I've really done I think I've worried too much about trying to put myself out there and be you know put things on social media and I suppose in a way promote my book and myself I think that's not something that comes naturally to me at all which I do hear many authors say and I'm, I'm probably not quite answering your question but what I kind of wish and I hope that I will do be able to do more now from now on, is I do kind of wish that I had had taken confidence from things that it, that had happened rather than, it honestly felt like for a lot of the process since getting the book deal, I felt for, for most of 2021, and let's face it, it was not an easy year for many people, I felt like I was on the back foot with everything. I always felt like I was on the back foot and occasionally I'd get on the front foot for a brief period and then I'll be back on the back foot again. So it's almost like I wish I had 
I think I wish I'd enjoyed things a bit more and like I said, taken confidence from good things that happened. I'll just give you a quick example. So like I went to Australia last for the summer, last summer I got back in the UK, the beginning of May, and I went to a friend's book launch in Bristol and I took three proofs of my book to take into different independent shops while I was there. And I go into one shop with a friend and I take my proof up to the counter and I introduce myself and the bookseller behind the counter is like oh I've heard of this book I'm really excited about this book and I was so amazed that someone had heard of my book like before a few months before it was getting published I just couldn't believe it that I was incredibly overexcited and I'm sure I talked so much in a really embarrassing way that probably possibly you know that person will just thought well we can't possibly like have this author in ever again because it's like really embarrassing but you know things like I think I just I kind of wish I could have just let things in a little bit more the great things that happened and one of the best things that happened was when I got that email end of March saying that I had been picked by Val McDermott to be one of her new blood authors at the Theakston or Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate and that was one of those moments of like, okay, I have done something good in this book, you know, and really take that in. And actually that was one of those things that honestly I really did take in like over mm. the next couple. Yeah. I mean, that is a sign that you've made it. I think, I, I think there's, there's <laughs> not much you can, you can't really better being picked by Val McDermott somehow. <laughs> I have one final question for you and you've, hinted already about it but I wonder if you could just give us a tiny teaser about what the new project you're writing is. What can I tell you about it? It's it's a, another crime thriller set in Western Australia. I, I have changed the setting uh, a few times in fact from more remote. It's now set in a beachside suburb in Perth and it is a serial killer story, which is a bit different for me. And it's, it's strongly influenced by this case of the Claremont serial killer, which um, was happening in the late, mid to late 90s in the neighbourhood where I had grown up and where my, I was, I was just, I had just for, been in the UK for a few years by that time, but my, sisters my friends were all still in that neighborhood and that was a case that really haunted me it went on for over 20 years before they caught the guy and partly because I was me and my friends and my sisters we were the same age of the girl of the girls who mm. were the victims of that killer so that really stayed with me and I had want have wanted to write a story that isn't closely does not closely follow that at all but it is another story of two young women taking on something that is really much in a way much too much for them to take on so it's a story of what happens when these two young women at the height of this um serial killer case take matters into their own hands and I think I won't say anything more about that because knowing me it's 
probably going to change quite a lot. <laughs> and I just know you're going to put your character through hell because that's what you do, Emma. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. It has been amazing talking to you. That was Emma Stiles talking about her thriller, No Country for Girls, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.